I learned a great truth about my wife's car this week. Unlike the car that I've driven for 11 years, and very much like, the more I think about it, probably every car I've ever been in prior to the car I've driven for the last 11 years, which, by the way, I just drive a Corolla. It's not like I drive something fancy, weird, different. I drive the most basic model of Toyota car you can get. And, um, but my car, you can either punch the light on or punch the light off. And it opens if you op- it turns on if you open the door. That's it. My wife's car, you can punch it on or off, and you got options. And little did I know the other night, stumbling in the dark to get some stuff at Jesse's out of the car, that I flipped that option to on the whole time. And changing a hybrid battery is a little bit of a different ballgame than just driving up to the auto zone. And so I just want you to know, make sure if you turn the lights on in your car, you don't turn that switch all the way over to the one side because it's not going to be good for you. Not teaching anything you didn't already know, so let's go to Revelation. <laughs> Just thought you'd get a kick out of it, because it's the worst thing in the world for the people to call and say, yeah, and here's, here's what you're going to have to pay, and you realize there is no other reason for this than my sheer stupidity. So, anyways, good times. Uh, we're back in Revelation, but, but, but instead of turning Revelation with me, I want you to start somewhere we've looked before. I want you to go with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. I want you to go with me back to the book of Daniel, to chapter 7. And you remember, just real quick, I'm not going to read through the whole passage with this. I want to highlight a specific part. But you remember, Daniel 7 is in the book of Daniel. It's the halfway point, and it's when the, the focus in Daniel moves from narrative to prophecy. And this specific prophecy takes place, uh, takes place in the first year of Belshazzar, which would be the final the final ruler there in Babylon, before Babylon would fall. Daniel has a dream where he sees coming out of a sea of chaos, representative of the wickedness and chaos of mankind. He sees four beasts come out. And we remember each one of those beasts is representative of the four major world empires that will dominate the the people of Israel You've got Babylon, you've got the Medo-Persian Empire, you've got Greece, you've got Rome. And then in that description of Rome, this fourth beast, it's it's not given an animal resemblance. We're just told that it's fierce, it's terrifying, its teeth are like iron. uh, And and that out of this beast arises ten horns. Remember, horns are representative of kingdoms in much of the imagery in Scripture, kings or kingdoms. And that amongst these ten horns that seem to exist simultaneously, and you remember when we looked at that, we said we've seen Rome already come and go. What we've not seen are ten simultaneously ruling king, kingdoms roll. So we, we've all of a sudden in this fourth beast, we've made a jump from past to us to future for us. And amongst these ten horns, you've got the one horn that comes up seemingly out of nowhere, little it destroys, plucks out three of the horns. This horn is unique. It possesses eyes, eyes that, like the eyes of a man, it possesses a, a knowledge and, and an awareness. Remember that this is the little horn of Daniel 7 is who we know most commonly probably in American church life as the Antichrist, capital A. And it says that he, he boasts great boasts. And, and so after he sees this, remember what he says, look, Daniel 7 verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up. 
and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court set, and the books were open. And of course, we read that continually during this time, the, the little horn is uttering great beast, and he kept looking, the beast was slain, body was destroyed in burning, burning fire. You have this picture, if you remember, where in the midst of all these kingdoms of man arising and, and doing their thing, he sees into the, the heavenly throne room, and he watches God take his seat on the throne, and, and there are other thrones al- alongside God's throne. Now, not equal thrones, but just other spots where it simply says the court, some kind of heavenly court sits down, books are opened. Remember later in Daniel, it speaks of books, a book that is sealed up for a time coming. And it's in the midst of this, if you drop down to verse 13, it says, Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days. He was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and it goes on to describe his kingdom, which will not pass away. So we find in Daniel this scene when Daniel's looking out, and God gives him a prophetic vision of, of, of all of essentially world history until the return of Christ. Daniel, interestingly enough, the two descriptions he gives of heaven, the first one focuses on God the Father, sovereignly seated on His throne, bringing judgment against the wicked rulers and the the epitome of wickedness, the little horn, the Antichrist, and bringing judgment. And then you're you're left with this question, so what now? What's what's left? Who who has the right to rule? Whose kingdom will come in? And, And of course, we see that only one, the Son of Man, this figure, the Son of Man, we know this, this figure, uh, Son of Man, is a messianic designation. We know Jesus, it was his favorite self-title, the Son of Man. He, he's presented, he stands before the Ancient of Days, implying inequality. And, and I just want you to refresh and go back and see that, because I told you last week, we, we, we only made it through really half of what's one scene. So go back with me to Revelation 4, because Revelation 4 and 5 follow an eerily or should I say a purposeful, similar, purposefully similar pattern. Uh, let me just remind you chapter 4, right? Chapter 3 finishes the letter to the seven churches. Chapter 4, after these things, after he wrote down and heard what he's supposed to write to the seven churches, uh, John looks up. He sees some kind of an opening, a doorway that's been left open for him to come up into heaven. He hears the voice he heard at first, the voice of Jesus call him up. He doesn't go bodily, but he says he goes in spirit. Uh, when he's up there, he sees a throne, and there's, remember, this beautiful description of, of the throne of God and, and the one who's sitting on it, whose glory can't be described. So the best John can do for us is red ja- uh, uh, diamond-like jasper stone, red sardius. There's a, a rainbow, an emerald in appearance around the throne. And then around that throne, remember, there's 24 thrones, 24 elders. And I don't think we fully answered who they were last week. We will... We will attempt to do so this week, that there's four, four beasts. Now, not the same four beasts as Daniel 7. These are the, maybe the best term for these would be the four living creatures. These are akin to the, 
the kind of angels you, you see described in Ezekiel. We, we looked at it last week and said it may very well be they're either the same as Ezekiel or, better spoken, it's, it's a little bit more uh, of a clearer depiction of the seraphim described in Isaiah chapter 6 because of the six wings and these four living creatures. They day and night cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And when they cry out, we watch the 24 elders fall down and worthy are you, Lord. And there's a focus on his sovereignty, on his, his lordship over creation, which he's created. And, and this, this incredible picture of the glory and greatness and firmness and sovereignty and worthiness of God. And then you come to chapter 5 and it's just a continuation. I saw in the right hand of him who is set on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Now, I, th- th- what I'm about to say is, is, is somewhat conjecture on my part, so l- this is one of those times, thus saith pastor, not thus saith the Lord. But I, I have to suspect, let me back up, John all of a sudden looks and he notices that in this scene, all this worship is taking place, and he looks and sees in the right hand of God, the hand of power, the hand of favor, the hand of might, that in the right hand there is a book, or your, your Bible may use scroll, it's, it's a word that can go both ways, it can refer to a book-like codex, like you and I would be more familiar with, or a scroll, but this, this scroll, and, and likely probably he did see a scroll, that's a little more true to the, the, the language there, but this scroll's been filled up completely, front and back. But it's been sealed perfectly, seven seals. Remember, seven, not always is, is symbolic, but often in Revelation especially, seven is the number of perfection. This scroll is sealed. And there is a search that, is, that he watches take place all throughout the cosmos. It says all throughout heaven. So think about that. Every person who's died in faith in Christ, who's who's righteous by virtue of Christ's righteousness. Every angel who, if they're still an angel, that means there's a moral perfection to them. They've not fallen. Every single kind of angel, kinds we're aware of, kinds we're not aware of. And no one in heaven was found worthy. There was a scouring of the entire earth where we know there were faithful men and women standing and dying for the sake of Jesus Christ, and none, even of those great saints, were found worthy or able to open the scrolls. Under the earth, meaning those who have died. I mean, you go back. Abraham, not worthy. Moses, not worthy. Joshua, not worthy. David, not worthy. Daniel, who somehow gets through his entire book without ever there being a glimpse of anything bad. He's one of two Old Testament characters who comes out really good. Not even Daniel is found worthy. Now here's where I say conjecture. I have to wonder how familiar John at this point, obviously likely in his mid to late 80s, it's possibly even early 90s, discipled by the Lord himself. He's he's, he's been a pastor. He knows the scriptures. Surely he has to be familiar with Daniel and the books in Daniel that have been recorded for the rest of human history that that have been sealed up. 
I just have to wonder because look what John does. When, when the search goes out and no one is found, then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or even to look into it. No one was worthy, much less to even open the seals. They couldn't even peek between, you know, peek at some words on the page. I have to wonder, because some would just simply say, if, if you did a, a dive in commentary, some would just say, well, look how, look how real and tangible this, this vision, this experience is for John, and he's so caught up in the moment. And I think that a lot is true, but part of me has to wonder if part of that catching up, remember, John is in exile on Patmos for his stand for the Word of God. Or, or for his stand for Jesus Christ at the Word of God. He's writing to churches, all of which are experiencing persecution in some form, shape, and fashion. Some of them are dying martyrs' deaths. Did you know, by the way, it's estimated that right now, every year, there's 100 to 150,000 men and women and children killed around the world for the sole reason they're Christian? That there are more martyrs since the 1900 than there have been in the previous 1900 years of church history put together. He's in the midst of this intense suffering. There is no, there's no hope for an election the next year to maybe see if they can stem the tide. There's no, there's, there's no earthly hope or protection. And here he's, he's seen this vision of the glory of Jesus. And here he's wrapped up in heaven. And, and here it is. Here's the scroll. And no one can open it. The crushing weight that hits him. There's no one that can open it. What's going to happen? What's our lot? What's... And then one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold. All of a sudden, the elder's going to point John's attention to something he hadn't seen yet. More, more to the point, to someone he hadn't noticed yet. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has, and here's this word, we should know it from Sundays, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Behold, John, here's the lion of Judah, the root of David, the one who has overcome all things. Take heart. In this world you have tribulation, but I, I have come that you might have my peace. I have overcome the world. Look, John, there's one, only one who's worthy. There is only one who is perfectly righteous fully as God and perfectly righteous fully as a man. There's only one who is both God and Lion of Judah and Root of David. There's only one. And it says, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders. So in the midst of this heavenly scene with the throne of God, the four living creatures surrounding the throne of God, the thrones of the 24 elders, I saw a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and He took the book out of the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. 
And when he took the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and every nation and people group. And you have made them to be a kingdom, priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth forever. All of a sudden, he looks in between and he sees a lamb as if slain. The term lamb is used 29 times in the book of Revelation. 28 times it refers exclusively to Jesus in His resurrected and glorified state having paid the sacrifice for mankind's sin. The one time it does not is in reference to the dragon's beast, who you and I would know as capital A Antichrist, who will appear like a lamb to deceive people. He won't be the lamb, but he'll try to appear like the lamb. There's a rich history of lamb. It was as God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and God stops Abraham and God provides a lamb for a burnt offering. God tested Abraham, but God did not allow Abraham to sacrifice his own son, but he sure foreshadowed the fact that on the very mountain that Abraham and Isaac climbed would go on to be the very mountaintop where the temple was built and the Holy of Holies housed the Ark of the Covenant. It would be the very temple Jesus was rejected at. And God the Father would slay His own Son as a sacrifice for mankind. There God provided a lamb to save Isaac's life. It's the, it's the use of a lamb at Passover in Exodus. The blood of a lamb that will cover the doorpost to cause the angel of of death to pass over. It's, it's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who is like a lamb led to the slaughter, silent before its shearers. It's, it's Jesus as He passes by and John the Baptist sees Him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, this, the sacrifice of God who will pay the price, who will bring atonement, who will satisfy the just, holy, righteous, right, wrath, and sentence of God upon sin so that any who believe in faith, in His grace, He would save and restore and reconcile and redeem and make new and bring into a right relationship with God. This lamb, did you notice, he was as if slain, past tense. He's seen standing. Standing. It's perfect tense, meaning he stands forevermore. Standing before, did you notice, remember back to the last, what, what is the reaction of every other, every other being John has seen in heaven? What has been their reaction to God sitting on the throne? To fall down. The lamb doesn't fall down, he stands. Because he's God. And just like the scene Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 7, here we see the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne with a scroll written in it. And people debate, there's all sorts of speculation ideas. Uh, sim simply put, it, it's likely either the rest of the book of Revelation or it's, it's, it's the rest of God's judgment upon human history. And just as the Son of Man came and stood before the Ancient of Days, so now we see the, the Son of Man is the Lamb who is as if slain, who now stands before. And, and He doesn't have to ask. He just takes as if it's his right 
as if he's the rightful heir of all things, as if he is Lord, because he is. Says that he's seven horns. Remember what his horns? Horns refer to kingdom power. Jesus is perfect in power, perfect in dominion, perfect in rule. He is almighty, omnipotent. He is God. Seven, seven eyes that represent the seven spirits which are sent out. We saw last week the seven spirits is a, is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And there's kind of a, a, it's, it's a symbolic thing here for Jesus. Seven eyes. He has perfect knowledge. We saw in chapter 1, eyes of flaming fire. Jesus has perfect knowledge. He knows all things actual, all things possible. You and I only know a fraction of things actual, and we know nothing possible. Not only that, but His knowledge. Who is it that Jesus said He would send the Holy Spirit? The seven eyes are the... He sends the Holy Spirit to be empowering to, to the church. He is equal with... The Holy Spirit, you see a perfect triumph. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all unique, all distinct, but co-equal, co-eternal, and all in unity. One God, three persons. Triune. And he sees the response to the Lamb when, when he takes the book. Here's this, you, you can imagine there's been this, this praise and all of a sudden it's quiet and, there, and, there, and there's some hustle as there's this looking throughout heaven and, and John quickly realizes as someone comes in, you can just kind of imagine with me, someone comes in, we found no one worthy. And John, you'd be, in the midst of maybe a silence, you hear John weeping, and another, oh, stop weeping. Behold, the Lamb of God. And you can imagine in a dramatic pause of music, the Lamb stepping up, taking that scroll. And it says as He takes the scroll. When He had taken the scroll, the four living creatures... The 24 elders, they all prostrated themselves before the Lamb. They offered up a harp, golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang, Worthy, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain, you were killed, and, and through your death, through the shedding of your blood, you purchased for God men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom of priests. All of a sudden, we're not just seeing a picture of who Jesus is. They are praising Him specifically for what He alone can do. You're the only one who could die in... in, 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 in this way. Jesus, you're the only one who could die in Wes's place. Wes could die in Wes's place, but it's just going to be eternal death. You're the only one who could die in His place and bring about life. Not only that, but by the shedding of your blood, it's your blood purchased. This is language of redemption. And I get that, that term redemption, it implies that you go out to the market and they would bring up slaves and put slaves on a platform. And you would bid. You would purchase the slave off the seller's block. Well, you and I were on a different seller's block. You and I were dead on a seller's block in our trespasses and sins. We couldn't buy ourselves out. No other person could buy us out. And Jesus stepped up, not with silver and gold and precious stone that our nations to this day still rage over. But He said, I've got something even more valuable and precious, my own blood. I will buy you off. Not so you can be your own, but so you can be my own which is life, where life is found. It says just that, but his, his, his goal, when Jesus goes to purchase people off the block, notice it there. It's from every people, tongue, tribe, people, group, nation, 
God's heart is not for one specific people group. He, he is after them all. And there is not one nation more precious in His sight. Now you might say, well, is there a little bit of a, of an, a special place for Israel? I would say it seems so. But sparing, sparing the question around Israel, understand there is not one nation in this world more precious in God's sight. America is not more precious in God's sight than India. And God is just as concerned about saving people out of India as He is America. And go pick another nation. I can name all 180 for you if you want, but we don't have time for that. Mali, Comoros, Chile, Tuvalu. All the little nations that aren't even, all the little islands that aren't nations but belong to some other. He's concerned about all of them. He's after all of them because all are made in his sight, fearfully and wonderfully. And just, uh, we'll come back to that, but let me just simply say it, church family. It's why we as a church family, we can never be about only reaching one kind of person. That's not Jesus' way. Our call is to go make disciples of, what did Jesus command us? The nations. It's never just here or just there. It's always both and to whatever grace God gives us to do it. And not only that, but when he buys them out, look what he makes them. He doesn't just simply buy them out, but he makes them a kingdom, royal priests, those who minister to God and, and they will reign upon the earth. Oh my goodness. Now let me just give you a pause because it, it's applicable here. Uh, there, there's essentially one of two ways. Who are the 24 elders? Uh, there, there's essentially one of two ways you can go. The 24 elders are either some kind of angelic class of angelic being, uh, using the term angel broadly, or they are 24 human representatives, which if you go that direction, the most likely distinction is each one of the 12 tribes of Israel plus the 12 apostles. Now, you can make a strong case either way. Personally, I, I lean probably towards this. Because the description in chapter 4, we're not told anywhere that angels are given crowns and white robes, but we're told all throughout Scripture that we as humans who are in Christ are given crowns and white robes. There is a textual variant in some of the manuscripts here where, uh, where you could read it, uh, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased us for God. In which case, if that was the case, then when you get to that last part, you have made them, that's when the the four living creatures chime in, and obviously uh, it would be impersonal there because angels can't experience redemption, only humans. But inevitably, regardless of where you want to go with the 24 elders, we'll know for sure when we get there and see Him. It matters not for understanding the glory of Jesus, which is the point of this passage. It's not telling you not to ask questions. It's just me saying, I'm not going to belabor more time on it. Uh, simply because you can make some really great arguments either way. I'll tell you where I lean. I lean towards their likely representative of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. But understand even there, you're going to have questions because there were 13 tribes. Ooh. Because Joseph's tribe was named after his two sons. So is it who's in or who's out? Well, there were 12, there were 12 disciples, but I promise you one of them's not one of these 12. So is it Matthias? Is it Paul? Even if you go that direction, we still got some questions. But it doesn't change the point. Worthy is the Lamb. 
and all of these elders who obviously are given a very prestigious and, and, and mighty place, they bow down and worship. Then he looks again, verse 11, and I heard the voice. So all of a sudden, he looked again. He's mesmerized by this scene, but then he, then he takes in the sights again, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. All of a sudden, it's as, it's, it's as if he sees more going on, and around the throne, the living creature, the elders, and the number of the angels was myriad of myriads, thousands of thousands. That is a biblical way of saying all of a sudden, more angels showed up than you could possibly count. So all of a sudden, the throne room of heaven is getting packed. And saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So all of a sudden now, the heavenly choir comes in, all of the angels, and they're adding to the praise. The song is getting even greater, but wait, it gets even bigger. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and on the sea, and all things in them, all of a sudden, every created being, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and dominion forever and ever. Now, someone's inevitably going to go, well, pastor, how's that possible? Because if we know Philippians tells us there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, whether they are in Christ or not, every human being is going to confess Jesus is the only one worthy and He's Lord. Those of us in Christ will do it on that day with great joy in our heart. Those not in Christ will do so in abject terror because they now recognize He is in fact Lord and they do have to stand before Him. And they're guilty. And He gave them a shot. He paid the price for them. You say, here, is this a snapshot later? Is this because, I mean, obviously there's not been a point yet. We haven't had a moment in, in the last 2,000 years where every, I, I, I can't quite answer that question of timing for you. And we can get into some great little debates. And what, 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 what's, Here's the simple point. John is watching it move, the, the progression of praise, of recognizing the worthiness and the glory of Jesus Christ has now moved to all creation. And because of the way it's phrased, and again, this is a little bit just of me wondering, I have to wonder if all creation, if somehow even things like animals jump in that cry of praise. We know God can make it possible. He made a donkey to talk. But even if it's not understand, every human being in the image of God, every, every created being will, will bow, will declare. Now, it's interesting as you watch the progression especially if we, if we think the 24 elders are human representatives of the rest of mankind, only in their cry is there a cry of praise for the experience of redemption because only humans can experience redemption. The angels are cries about redemption because they glory and marvel at our redemption. Or the, the, sorry, the, uh, the, the, the four living beasts there at the end of... They're in a the last half of, or in, in verse 10. Then when you add the, the angels, the cry of praise is all of a sudden shifted to just the sheer worthiness of Jesus to possess all things. And then when you move out to all of creation, it's again the same thing. He, he who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, there is a recognition of the, the triune God. Now I know only two of the three persons are mentioned there, but understand uh, the recognition is that God is 
alone is worthy. You see, you sh- you see a, a shifting of a cry of praise that is perfectly um, justified by every party, right? Because every, every person in creation can't say, worthy are you for purchasing us, because not every, not every person has been purchased. But every person will, make no mistake, drop to their knee and confess with their mouths one day, you alone are worthy, God. So this is what it says, and the four living creatures kept saying, amen, amen, let it be. And the elders fell down and worshiped, which I'll remind all of us. It's not that they fell down and subsequently worshiped. Falling down is the picture of worship. Worship is to live in complete and total surrender out of first-hearted love to the Lord. That's what worship is. So I can worship through a song. I can worship changing pull-ups. I can worship potty training. I can worship. I'm not trying to dumb down worship, but understand worship is to being surrendered out of love and a response to God. It's not just singing songs. In fact, the songs of worship we sing are void if, if, the, if the faithlessness of our life repeatedly denies the, the lyrics we're singing. That's no different than the Israelites going, oh Lord, we're still tossing sacrifices on the on the barbecue of the altar for you, and he's going, hey, that's great, but it's not about the sacrifice. It's about your heart being in surrender to me. And it's not because you're out there playing the harlot with every idol you can get your hands on. Worship is surrender. Now, here's what I find fascinating as we move into this part in Revelation. Two weeks, we're two weeks in to the middle part of Revelation. We've made it through two chapters into the middle part of the book, and there has not been one thing yet about how, well, what's all going to happen? What are these things mean? What does this mean? When does this happen? What's the chronology of this? What's that? All the stuff that we typically get big and hung up on and dry. Isn't it interesting that that's not how God starts it? That none of that stuff comes until there is two chapters spent making clear who is worthy and what it's all about. That God is, in fact, no matter whether we find ourselves on exile in Patmos or we find ourselves living in a broken economy filled with wild and crazy politicians and this trial and that trial and, and this thing. And, that, and you can go on and fill in all the things we could just take. We could just get some answers right now. What are all the crazy things we're all experiencing in the world? Regardless of the situation, God is on his throne. He is surrounded by a heavenly court that would terrify us if we saw them alone, yet they are bowing in adoration to Him because He alone is worthy. He is God, not us. He's not just worthy, but He's worthy of my all. He's worthy of my true and surrendered and undivided worship. He's worthy of my worship even when life is hard and there is suffering. Now, here's what I mean by that. I do not mean that worship of God when life and heart is hard and suffering doesn't mean when tragedy hits your door, you just suck those tears back up because you said you were going to worship Jesus. Listen, you can worship Jesus on the ground crying. Mary did it, and she got Jesus' tears on her neck. What I mean by worship is when everything has been robbed, and we are crushed and on the ground, weeping and unable to know what's going on and asking God the hard questions. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? I cry out by day, but you do not respond. I cry out by night, but there is no peace. Yet you alone are holy, O Lord, who inhabits the praises of your people 
And you, our fathers, trusted and they were not put to shame. Psalm 22, 1 through 4. That's worship. Worship is the ability to, because I'm confident of his character, I know I can come before him and weep my eyes out and and have the hard questions and walk with him and still not slander him with my mouth overflowing from my heart like is made about Job. Job struggled, yet it's repeated on the front and the back that in all these things he did not defy the Lord in his mouth. So I mean by worship and our hardship is not something to do with can we be sad or not. What I mean is when suffering comes is our first response. And think about what I shared. 76% of American Christians believe in major tenets of the prosperity gospel. And here's what's frightening about that. Chances are that means not one of us in this room is untouched. And I'll just give you a simple example. If I were to ask the question, Has God blessed America historically? I would assume many would say yes. And I would say, well, how do we know God's blessed America historically? Would your answers be our independence, our wealth, our prosperity as a nation? Now, I'm not saying that God may or may not have blessed us with this thing. My simple point is, many of us would say, I don't believe in the prosperity gospel, but the whole reason we call our country blessed is because of prosperity. Again, don't, I'm not trying to make it all about America. Don't get caught up there. I'm just trying to drive an instance. Not one of us is exempt from easily believing, well, God, why is this hard? If, if you're really for me, nothing should be hard in my life. When Scripture says God is absolutely for you and I knowing and following and loving Him, which means, guess what? We're going to experience what Jesus experienced because we're not better than Him. It's enough for the student to be like the teacher, the servant, the master. And so we've got to come to a place where when we experience hardship, the first response is not, God, you're jipping me. But it's, Lord, you give and take away. Blessed be your name. We've got to worship whether it's in in prosperity or whether it's in sorrow. Because he's worthy. He alone is worthy. He alone is the Messiah, the anointed one. He alone paid the price. He alone redeems people and he doesn't just save us from our sin. I'll say this till I'm blue in the face. Jesus doesn't just save us from our sin. He does do that. But too often in the way we present the gospel in the States, it's always, you need to be forgiven from your sin. Ask Jesus into your heart. Listen, that's true. You need to be forgiven from your sin. But that's only part of the story. Why do you need to be forgiven of your sin? Because you're in rebellion against God and He made you to be in a right relationship of joy, love, and peace and hope with Him. The aim is not just getting rid of the sin. The aim is getting rid of the sin so we can jump you over the eternal chasm and you can look full into His wondrous face and know life abundantly. That's the goal. That's what Jesus redeems. And I say it that way because if it's just freeing us from our sin, how do you think part of the reason we've gotten the notion, well, Jesus has saved me. He forgives everything. I can do what I want with my life. Well, if he just freed me from my sin and didn't also save me to a purpose, then you can kind of get off there. He didn't just save me from something, he saved me to himself. And he alone saves. By the way, there is no other gospel we ought to ever preach than Jesus alone saves. Him being worthy means Jesus is the main character of the story. I cannot tell you, going to a Baptist college, how many history professors I've had lay the joke down. We love to study history because it's his story. 
and they always chuckle. Some of y'all, you get it? History, his story. It is all about him, but can I maybe go a step further, church family? Every single drop of my story and your story, he's the main character, not us. He's not just the main character of history's story, he's the main character of our story because it's not about me, it's about him even in my life. Isn't it fascinating that the beginning of all the future time Stuff in Revelation doesn't jump into chronology and symbolism and apocalypse, but it begins with a clear and un, un, um, undeniable picture of the glory of God and the worthiness of Jesus Christ. Because we can have a million different discussions all about our different thoughts and end times, and we can get dogmatic in this and that and the other, and forget that even in those discussions, it's not about which one of us figured out all the, all the puzzle clues. It's about Him and worshiping Him now. In the present, until my life's final breath, where I'll spend all eternity living a life of worship unto Him. So what do we do with this? One, we got to recognize and respond to who He is. Part of that means we've got to be willing. Think about the letters to the seven churches. You have this picture of Jesus in chapter one. You have these letters. Five of the seven call out churches for sin. Only two churches get no call out of sin. Five of the seven have issues. And then all of a sudden, you jump back here to this picture. Do you realize it's this Jesus who asks us? It's this Jesus who poses the question, hey, you, you check all the boxes, you believe all the right things, but you've left your first love for me. Repent. It's this Jesus who says, hey, don't be afraid of what you see coming, but be faithful now unto death. I know, I'm with you. It's to this Jesus we have to, it's to this Jesus, part of recognizing and responding to Jesus is being willing to go, you know what, Lord, this is out of alignment in my life. It's been out of alignment in my life for a long time, and time doesn't make it go away. I got to repent and say, I'm sorry, I'm wrong, you're right. I mean, realize that. That's true individually, it's true corporately. A church that walks for 20 years in sin and then all of a sudden never repents and it's the same people, but, but, but they've just kind of forgotten about the 20 years of sin, that church still needs to repent. Jesus' language in the seven letters, I have this against you, present tense, meaning I currently have it against you and I will continue to have it against you until you repent. Part of responding is allowing the Lord to speak in and to address, where are we not loving? Where are we not following? Where are we not? But the flip side is also this. Have we forgotten who He is? Do we forget what He does, what He's all about? There is a sense which, like John, and I'm not trying to dog on John because I can't, I, I don't I can't fathom. So this is not a shot at John, but it, it, it just is kind of a devotional thought that has pierced me. This is John who spent three years with Jesus incarnate. This is John who's seen him transfigured on the mount. He's seen him resurrected and ascended to glory. This is John who saw him in chapter one. This is John the apostle. He knows there's only one who's worthy, yet he weeps. Now, I don't, again, I'm not making an accusation on him, but I am saying, how many times do I know there is one who's worthy, that there is one who's on the throne, that there is one who my life belongs to, and yet when circumstances come, I weep because I fear no one can be found to correct it. Oh no, what's going to happen? Huh? This new, oh my goodness, this summer has just been, I guess this is super practical for my life this summer, this summer has been a revolving door of dental, medical, car, and appliance issues. Almost every week we've had something major off, and in, in most weeks we've had a combination of those. Now those are, in the scheme of things, that's not people dying. 
But it is crazy big annoyances that have made major interruptions, and some of them have been a little bit frightening. In the midst of all of that, do I allow my emotions and fears and insecurities to drive? In the midst of all of that, do I go, the economy's horrible, I've spent over, had to spend over half of what we had saved up uh, to try to deal with these things, and I've got a baby who hadn't even gotten here yet? Like the real expenses haven't even kicked in. Oh no, what's going to How easy it is to forget there's one who's worthy to open the scroll. And just as he's worthy to open the scroll, he's worthy and fully in control of the circumstances of my life. But it's too easy to find myself weeping instead of rejoicing. We're prone to forget him. Against the terror of the world, trusting him means we obey him. It means we worship him. Listen, it is all true for all of us. It is far too easy for us to try to make Jesus in our image. And if we worship Jesus in our image, we're not worshiping Jesus, we're just worshiping us. Jesus doesn't look like us. In fact, God's will for our life is to make us look like him. Is there anything we're withholding? I love reading. Um, he probably is my, my favorite human author. Um, but I love reading A.W. Tozer. Because when you read A.W. Tozer, you'll read his works and you'll go, man, he is just, no one has pierced sharper the issues of the modern day church. This is crazy. And then all of a sudden you'll have this light bulb moment and go, he's writing to the church in the 40s, the 50s, when we all talk like it was good. But he writes as if it's like today. And one of his biggest issues with the modern American church, even back then, is that we had lost sight of the majesty and glory of God and our worship would ring hollow. Man, we, and he made the say, if I find any group of believers, no matter how big, no matter how small, no matter if they're of the denomination I'm part of, but if they are truly, passionately, in humble surrender and adoration of first love, worshiping Jesus, I'll go with those blooper believers for, for as long as I can. Just to be a part of a corporate worship with brothers and sisters. Church family, that's got to be who we are as a church. That's got to be when we come together on Wednesdays, when we come out of church, there ought to be just, just our faces shining with the glory of God because we've just been on our faces either physically or metaphorically or spiritually worshiping the Lord, adoring the Lord. And if that's going to be true of us as a congregation, it's got to start with me and my own heart. Which means I have to view life as all about Him who is worthy got to meditate on the glory and wonder of who he is. Isn't it incredible? In heaven, they're still not over the fact that Jesus died on a cross for our sin and rose from the grave. Yet how often do we think we need it's time for something new in our faith? How often do we forget the simple wonder that Jesus Christ would, would come after a five and a half year old boy who can offer him nothing? Who just wanted to ask Jesus in his heart so he could drink the little juice and get the cracker like every other kid. But instead of just leaving that kid in a place where he had that instead in the kindness of the Holy Spirit, he convicted that little kid's heart that he was in fact a sinner and that he didn't need a juice and cracker. He needed a Savior to rescue him and restore him and give him life to a five and a half year old kid who couldn't preach, who couldn't minister to anybody, who couldn't go do much. 
could do much anything but be a five and a half year old kid waiting to get in kindergarten. Yet our God sought me. I should never get over that. Never get beyond that. Only go deeper into the glory and wonder of who he is. And it's on the basis of Jesus' worthiness that he takes that scroll and that he cracks the seal. And just like the old serials in the movie theater, we'll see you next week to see what happens when he cracks that seal and where things go. Let me pray. Jesus, you're worthy. Jesus, I think the hardest thing about passages like this to preach and to teach is knowing full well that looking in a mirror, Lord, I understand full well, I don't really grasp the grandeur and majesty and greatness of who you are. There's been glimpses, there's things I understand, but Lord, it's hardly anything compared to you. So then to turn around and to try to lead and bring all of us before your throne, Lord, I just don't know any human that can truly do it, which is a marvel that you and your might and power and grace desire to use us. But any way you use us is only because of the blood you shed. We overcome, Lord, not by our strength and power, but by your blood and the word of our testimony. Jesus, you are worthy. And I pray for every man and woman in this room, every man and woman, boy and girl watching online, for every person who is a part of this church family, that, Lord, you would just refine us anew, that when we go out of here, we live lives enraptured with the greatness of who you are, that live lives of surrendered worship that are constantly coming back to remember that there is one who is worthy and it is you and, it, and, and you're the one who, whose eye is on the sparrow, but, but you know the number of hairs on our head. You're the one who has said, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age, the ends of the earth. You're the one. And you love us and you walk with us. You've not left us alone or abandoned weak. You sent the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you live within us to convict us, to empower us, to guide us, to lead us, to strengthen us, to embolden us. Lord, may you transform us that we would live lives of worship. May you transform us. God, that when we come together as a church body, whether it be on a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, a Monday night, prayer meeting, a Wednesday night, Bible study, whatever it may be, whether it be choir, rehearsal, and practice, whatever it may be, that when we are together as a church body, Lord, our faces would glow because we have met with you and seen your glory. That, Lord, the light that we shine into this community, this community may like us, they may dislike us, but they would say, man, those people, all I know is there is a love for Jesus unlike anything. They love Jesus more than life itself, and they are just, their faces shine with a glory I don't understand. Lord, may you make us and mold us who you want us to be, and may you find us face down, surrendered, joyfully and lovingly, trusting you whether we find ourselves on the mountaintop or the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus, we look to you and it's in your name I pray. Amen.